Well, we are in week three of a series called Upside Down Christmas, or Christmas Upside Down. I got that backwards, not intentionally, but that kind of works. Um, Christmas Upside Down, and we've been looking at the circumstances that surrounded the birth of Christ, and there's aspects of Christmas that we love. We have trees, we have lights, you drive around the community, uh, and, and you know, it's just festive and fun, and there's food. And I'm starting a diet after Christmas. Who else is with me, right? I'm starting before the new year. I'm going to get a jump on that. I love Christmas. By the way, if you love good Christmas lights right here, like, like a good display on homes, right up here on Flamingo Drive is, uh, is an amazing display. If you go right up Lorraine Avenue, eventually you'll hit, you'll hit Flamingo. It's old cul-de-sac. And most of the houses on that street have decorated their homes. And then you tune your radio to a station and the music and all the lights are coordinated. And it's pretty amazing. So there's a little, little Christmas freebie for you. Love Christmas. But what we've recognized is that the Christmas story, as we see it in Scripture, bears very little resemblance to what we celebrate in our modern day. All of the lights and the festivity was definitely not a part of what Jesus experienced as a baby and what Jer Joseph and Mary experienced as they journeyed towards Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus Christ. And been asking the question, why did God see fit to have Jesus come the way that he did? Why was Jesus born as a baby? Why didn't he simply come as a king? Kind of just get to the point, right? Just, just accomplish the task at hand. And how many of you are just doers? You're like, you make your checklist and you're like, all right, let's just start knocking stuff off. Why didn't God just take that approach and say, hey, let's just cut to the chase. Let's get this thing done. Jesus is going to come as a man because he could have done that. And, and indeed, he will at the second coming. We, he will come as a man. He's not going to come as a baby again. Why? Why did this all happen? Well, I've been presenting the fact or the, the, the idea that the clue can be found in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mountain and the Beatitudes. This moment in time when Jesus, now as an adult, who's gone through the process of growing up and becoming a man, now starts presenting his mission and starts talking about the kingdom of God and why he came and the purpose behind him coming. And so it's almost like he, he was born... And then when he was in his 30s, he made his entrance. Now, the, the easy thing here is to, would be to dismiss what happens in the nativity story and miss some of the depth behind what God is speaking to us about this. My message today is entitled, Persecution, Pain, and the Christmas Story. Yay. <laughs> in fact, this may be the least Christmassy Christmas sermon ever. So, so buckle up, this is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about pain today, because we can't really have a conversation about the Christmas story, about the nativity, and not talk about pain. Now here's the reality, we don't like pain, you don't like pain, and we'd rather not deal with pain, we just want it to go away. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in the Beatitudes. And in fact, this is the last of the Beatitudes before Jesus moves on to the Sermon on the Mount. Those first few verses of Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 4 and then verses 10 through 12. So Jesus says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they 
will be comforted. He goes on to say in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a huge paradox here. This verse and these statements of Jesus present us with a problem, a huge problem, because this doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right. See, because the word blessed is translated happy or fortunate. So, so let's try that again. Fortunate are those who mourn. Really? Fortunate are those who are persecuted. Fortunate are those who are insulted. Fortunate... If people say things, fortunate are those who have people say false things against them. I, I've had people talk about me and found out about it. I'm sure there's people who talked about me and I've not found out about it. Thank you for the grace of God. It never feels good, does it? It never feels good. I would not consider those moments and those discoveries to go, wow, I'm so lucky. How blessed am I? No, it hurts. It hurts. And so it seems like Jesus may be a little confused here. But remember, we're talking about Christmas upside down. And God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. And we don't measure our, our lives in accordance with the kingdom of this world or the rule of this world. We have to look at his kingdom and the, the things that Jesus sets in, in, in place. So he's saying happy and fortunate are those who experience pain. Just... As we get into this this morning, I'm going to use the word pain to cover a lot of definitions. Just so, so when I say pain, you might just think of a, a certain thing or think of it in a certain way. But let me give you kind of the broader scope. When I say pain, I'm talking about persecution, abandonment, physical pain, relational pain, emotional pain, pain in whatever form, oppositional pain. Okay, so as I continue to say pain, I just want to have to say all of those words every time I mention it. So I'm just going to use the word pain. I think it's a word that's accessible to us because we get it, don't we? We get pain. Whatever your context is, whatever's going on in your life, whatever you've walked through, we all get pain. So a little caveat there. He says, happy and fortunate are those who experience pain. He does say this because of righteousness, and, and so we have to address that. See, persecution and pain is the result of following Jesus. The, the other would be this, pain that arises from sin, from the sinful actions in our lives that re result in consequences that are not fun, not easy, and we wouldn't characterize those as Good. And those are really things that we choose and introduce into our own lives. Here's the awesome thing about God. He can work in the midst of both. He works in the midst of both. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to work in the midst of both. But, but again, this morning, we're going to be looking at pain as it is concerned with more so the, the outward infliction of pain, things that are outside of our control. Whether it's a relationship or a circumstance, things that have been said or done to us, or even a physical diagnosis, something we didn't choose for ourselves, yet we suffer with. And so, 
We, we can cover both, but my, my primary focus will be the first. See, outside of the consequence of willful sin, it's safe to say that every aspect of the life is believed in the statement for his name's sake or for righteousness. See, because if I'm a Christian, if I'm a Christ follower, every part of my life is surrendered to Jesus and, and should bring glory to him. Every part of my life should be attached to Jesus. So it's not just like, oh, I'm going to experience conflict or opposition or persecution when I'm preaching and then everything else is somehow separated from Jesus. I understand that my life is hidden in Christ. That means that Jesus has a voice in every part of who I am and everything that I do. And so do you. Okay, so back to pain. We don't like to be persecuted and we don't like pain. I think it's a safe assumption that, that we would all agree with that statement. In fact, in our culture and cultures around the world, we go to great lengths to avoid pain. And rightly so, because we don't like pain. Pain hurts. And here's the thing, pain and persecution are unpredictable and undeniable. It's unpredictable in this. I was just walking along, minding my own business. I didn't choose this for myself. Yesterday was a great day, and today, not so great. I didn't predict this. I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this, but here it is nonetheless. It's unpredictable, and it's undeniable. When you're in pain, you're in pain. Just saying, well, I choose not to be in pain doesn't somehow magically make you not be in pain. Am I right? You agree with that? We can, and we can stand on the promises of God. Hear my heart in all of this. The promises of God and the promises of, of His Word are promises for us to claim. But I'm going to speak to a little bit of our Christian culture in a few minutes and, and how sometimes we get that backwards. A little, a little tidbit. Jesus is not the advil for our ache. Jesus is not the advil for our ache. He's not the thing, he's not the method or the means by which my pain is just somehow taken away. He's much more aware of deeper things in my life. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so we go to great lengths. If you've ever been in a doctor's office or the nurse's office or in a hospital, you've probably seen one of these charts. The little smiley face assessment tool, right? Have you seen that? Right, on the left, no pain, happy I mean, if you're looking green, you probably have a problem, but no pain, everything's happy. It's amazing how red is associated with pain, right? No pain, then you get up to the mild pain, the moderate pain, the severe pain, and of course, all the way on the right, the worst pain possible, and the nurse or the doctor will say, well, what level is your pain at, right? And the hypochondriac goes, it's a nine, Right, And then other people who have a tolerance go, well, it's a three when it's actually a five. And what's the goal of this? It's not just to gain information about how, pain, how much pain there is. What's the nurse or the doctor trying to decide? How much to medicate you? How much medicine, what kind of dose, and what kind of medicine is needed to make the pain go away? Just make it stop. We don't like pain, and we even have little charts. Now, of course, this is in reference to physical pain, but I would guess that emotional pain is right up there with it, 
We could replace the physical and say, hey, emotionally, where are you at on this chart? Relationally, where are you on this chart? Internally, just in your own soul, where are you on this chart? And I would guess that most of us could probably pick a point and say, today I'm probably right about there. So much so that maybe even sometimes our thinking is this, I need to go to church so that the pain will stop. Which is not a bad thing. We're so glad you're here. And whatever reason that, Jesus, that you're here, that Jesus would meet you in this place exactly where you are. But the point is this, that Jesus is not the Advil to take away our ache. He's so much more. So you're going, holy cow, Pastor Barry, what does this have to do with Christmas? This is not very Christmassy. Well, let's look at the story, the nativity in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read from verses 13 to 23. It's a larger passage, but I want to get the context for what's happening. The words will be up on the screen. It says this, when they had gone, they being the magi, the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And, he, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, a voice is heard in Ramah. Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And after Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in in, in um, Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is a tough story. This is a hard story. The very first events of the life of Jesus after the Magi are scary and painful. And right out of the gate, by the way, if you're Joseph, you're like, I'm never sleeping again. I'm tired of having dreams with angels. Because every time Gabriel shows up, it's not good. And that must have been a real stress for him. Like, we, we, we chuckle about it, but the reality is, everything from the moment Gabriel showed up to, for Joseph has been difficult. There's been incredible opposition. Having your wife give birth to a child in a barn. This is not a fun, happy thing. This is tough. And now the, the, the magi show up and they have gifts. Which, by the way, isn't it amazing they show up in time to finance the trip? Why did they need gold? They're going on a journey. That's for someone this morning. 
you're wondering, God, what's happening? He shows up just in time. He shows up just in time. The insecurity of this man, Herod, is threatened by a baby. So much so that he lashes out and he kills all of the boys in Bethlehem and in that region. Can you imagine the anguish? The cries, the tears. How painful that would have been. Mary and Joseph now again on a donkey, loaded up, heading for a place that's not their country. Now we don't know exactly how old Jesus was. It says that Herod was targeting and looking for children under two years old. So there's a time frame. And, and, and just a point of correction for us or understanding is that the Magi didn't show up at, at the stable. It says in a few, a few verses before this that they came to the house. And so for whatever reason, Joseph and Mary got to Bethlehem and then they stayed there. Instead of going back to Nazareth where they had originally come from, they stayed in Bethlehem. And they managed to get a home. They moved into a home. I imagine Joseph started a business. He's a carpenter. He must have started a business. And they figured, hey, we're here Let's not take that journey back. That was a tough journey. Let's just stay where we're at. We've got, we probably had family in town because this was Joseph's family, city or a community of origin. And they decided to stay. So, so Jesus is in that two-year-old range. Now, I've talked about the fact that Mary traveling as a pregnant woman was difficult. But if you've ever traveled with a toddler, <laughs> right? Come on, somebody. I saw friends of ours are traveling right now with their kids. They have a number of children. They're currently in Australia, and they had rented a car, and um, the car did not have a TV. So they duct tape an iPad to the roof of the ceiling of the car because their kids are all little. They load up little Jesus and Mary on a donkey, and they head to a land that's not their own overnight. They were refugees. They had to flee for fear of their very lives. There's nothing comfortable or easy or festive about that. This is painful and difficult. And the very first events of Jesus' life, though he's a baby, are painful. In fact, from the moment of his birth, Jesus is subjected to the brokenness and depravity of his own sin-stained, rebellious creation. Let me say that again. From the moment of his birth, Jesus is subjected to the brokenness and depravity of his own sin-stained and rebellious creation. Jesus was present at creation. And the very creation, the very thing that he spoke into being and the very people he fashioned out of the, 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 the dust of the earth are now rebelling against him, seeking to take his life. See, we tend to think that Christmas is the cute part of the story and Easter is the painful part of the story. That's what our tradition has told us. Christmas is cute, it's fun, there's a baby, there's carols. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be this wet blanket. We sing joy to the world and it is joy to wor the world, just not in the way that we always think about it. There is more. See, the Christmas story is fraught with pain. Some would say, well, but Jesus was just a baby. Here's what we know in the study of psychology right now, is that precognitive trauma on babies affects them for their entire lives. 
that there are things that are affecting you that you don't even remember from when you were an infant. Beside that, think about the pain for Joseph and Mary. Think about the pain of the fathers and the mothers in Bethlehem in that region. Incredible pain, and as we already read, there's this fulfillment of prophecy that there would be this weeping in Ramah, in that area. For mothers who refuse to be comforted, they say the number one stressful, most stressful thing that you can walk through, number one most traumatic thing you can experience is the loss of a child, the death of a child. Now imagine that over a whole community. Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah 53. He says, of Jesus, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, listen to this, and familiar with pain, like one from whom the people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. We associate that prophecy with the cross, but it's present here at his birth as well. That throughout the life of Jesus, his reality was painful. The entire life of Jesus, from birth to death, is filled with opposition, rejection, persecution, and pain. We see it here at his birth in the early, early season of his life. We see it in Nazareth when his own community later on reject him and try to throw him off a cliff in his hometown. The insults and the accusations of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The betrayal of the disciples who were the closest to him. And even hanging on the cross. But here's the thing. In all of this, he was fully reliant upon the Father, fully committed to his call, fully surrendered to God's will, and full of grace and mercy. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of the persecution, Jesus stayed the course. Why did he come the way he did? Part of it is this, that he gives us a model by, why, by which we can look at our lives and say, I can do that. As he invites us to follow him and walk with him and align our lives with him and be conformed to his image, it's not out of our reach and out of our grasp. Because we can't say, well, Jesus never suffered pain. He did more pain than we will ever experience in our lives. And so Jesus, as I've said before, as a baby, becomes accessible to us. I can't relate to a king because I'm not a king, but I can relate to a baby. I can understand a baby, and I can understand the pain that he walked through in his life. So with that being said, I want to make four points. I'm going to touch on four things. The first two I'm going to spend a little bit more time on, and then the last two kind of uh, will transition probably to another sermon some other time, but I, I, I want to give a bit of a full picture. But these first two are the, the places that I, the place that I really want to emphasize. The first is this. In the story of Christmas and in the life of Jesus, we understand this, that pain is a constant reminder of our need for God. 
It's a constant reminder of our need for God. Jesus said this in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now let me stop there. We love the word peace at Christmas. And appropriately so, peace on earth. The angels sang it. And we love to talk about the peace. But the next part of this verse is not one that's as comfortable for us. He says, in this world you will have trouble. Not might, could possibly have. Jesus says that in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You need God. Here's the reality. I can't fix me. And you can't fix you. And we definitely can't fix each other. So stop trying. As a pastor, it's something I wrestle with. Lord, how do I help this person? And, and the Lord started speaking to me a number of years ago, and he said, stop trying to fix people, just love them. You don't need me to fix you, you need Jesus to fix you. We need each other just to simply love each other and extend grace and mercy to each other. I cannot fix me, and as much as I want to be in control, there are things in my life that are outside of my control, things that I cannot wrap my head or my hands around. I need a Savior. And can I tell you this morning, I need a Savior, and you need a Savior for more than just your sins. Jesus didn't just come to die for your sins. He came for so much more. See, I'm weak, and so are you. Hopefully that doesn't come as a surprise to you this morning. I am weak, and so are you. Our weakness is the evidence and is evident in the pain we experience. And the reality for most of us, if not all of us, is that there's hardly ever a day, if ever, that goes by where we do not experience some level of pain. And it might be kind of more on the left side of that chart, and some days it might be on the right side of the chart. But pain shows up. In all kinds of ways. And like I said, we can't predict it. It's unpredictable and undeniable. See, we do not have the ability to fix our brokenness. We cannot fix our own bodies. Physical pain and illness. And we can go to a doctor and we can get treatment. But we do not possess the ability to just snap our fingers and to be healed. We can call in the name of Jesus. We need his healing touch. We do not possess the ability to simply fix our broken relationships. Whether that's in a marriage or a parent-child relationship or just your relationship with your neighbor. You don't just in and of yourself have the ability to fix it. You need a savior. We battle with sin and addictions and things that vie for our attention, whether from the external or internally, as James says, that in our own hearts that sin is given birth to and we act out on it because it's what we want. And if I simply had the ability to fix myself, I wouldn't struggle with the things that I struggle, but I do because I need a savior. We don't have the ability to go back in time and correct 
and heal the hurts and wrongs afflicted on us by others, words said and actions performed. We don't have that ability. We need a Savior. Like I said, it's a daily thing. We're constantly reminded of this. Yesterday, I was driving on the freeway. Coming down the 57, getting onto the 210. And I'm giving lots of space in front of me because I drive a very big car and I need lots of stopping distance. And this guy with a big van and a huge trailer comes flying down on the right of me and cuts into that gap in front of me and I have to like lay on the brakes so to avoid hitting him. Can I just tell you, all of my sin nature just went whoosh and was right there, just ready. I had some youth in my car, so I'm glad the words that were in my head didn't come out of my mouth. I did say this. Just in that instant, I just said, fool. And the conviction of God, because I'm preparing for this message. All day. I just got done at Starbucks. The youth went ice skating. I went to Starbucks. I've been reading. I've been studying. God's stirring in my heart. I'm almost in tears. And then on the freeway, I'm reminded. I'm reminded that I'm broken. That when I'm pressed, what comes out is not good. It's not good. I need a Savior. It's a silly example It's a silly example, but the reality is there's much more pressing stuff in our lives on a daily basis. In those moments where I think words to say to my wife or even say them out loud, and as I'm saying them, the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, I wouldn't talk to your wife like that. Why why do you? Ouch. Because when we're pressed and when we're hurting, things come out of us that we don't like that we don't want, yet somehow, some, some reason, we can't just simply stop it. You remember the old Bob Newhart sketch, right? Stop, just he just stop. goes in and says, I'm struggling with all this stuff. I'm afraid I'm going to die or I'm afraid of combining. And he goes, I'm going to say one word or two words. <laughs> just stop. doesn't work that way. We need a Savior. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we receive ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. So here's the thing, you wouldn't appreciate compassion and mercy and healing were it not for pain. If your life was devoid of pain, you wouldn't need God. You just wouldn't. If there was no emotional pain, relational pain, physical pain, you would not need God. God says, you experience this pain and in the midst of it, my compassion and my mercy are available to you, and that God comforts us. You know what's amazing here is that Paul doesn't say he just takes the pain away. He meets us in the pain. He meets us 
in the struggle. Jesus walked this road as he struggled with the opposition from when he was a baby to when he hung on the cross. And you know what he did? He just kept going back to the Father over and over and over again. Oh Lord, these disciples you gave me. Knuckleheads, every one of them. But Lord, Father, help me to align my thinking with you. Hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Why? Because of the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort in that moment. See, Paul's reminder is that this is not all there is. We have hope for more. We have hope for God's kingdom, which doesn't look like this kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down story. It's an upside-down way to live our lives. We need God. Pain is a constant reminder that I need God. Second thing is this. Pain allows or gives place for us to be transformed by God. Pain allows for us to be transformed with God. And this begins with the surrendering of our will. And and we know this. You know this. Whether you know it or not, you know this. Our wills are not easily surrendered. Your will is not easily surrendered. We see this when we were kids. See... Back to the two-year-old. If a two-year-old doesn't get what they want, what do they do? There's a meltdown, right? Now, maybe not you. Maybe you were the perfect child. I'm so glad as a parent that we forget so much, right? But when you're two years old and you don't get what you want, that sin nature is ready to, ready to go. And it's stomping of feet and wailing and tears and screaming. And what ends up resulting is a battle of the wills. Whose will will prevail, the parents or the child's? Am I right? And someone's going to give in first. And as parents, we have to take that stand. See, because we talk about breaking the will. Now, it's not that can be used in an abusive context, and so that's not what we're talking about. But the breaking of the will or the the surrendering of that will is so important in parenting because what we don't deal with at at two years old, we'll still be dealing with at 16 years old, right? And we carry that into our adult lives. But here's the thing. It doesn't look like stamping of feet and tantrums anymore. We get really good and manipulating saying things under our breath using relational tactics to tell people let people know how we really think even body language and facial expressions which i'm terrible at like it's if you want to know what i'm thinking you don't have to hear words coming out of my mouth you just look at my face i'm like lord my parents like if i could not lie I cannot lie. Like my parents would ask me, and my face told the answer just immediately. As adults, we still deal with those things. And as God would come to us and try to conform and transform our lives and touch on things that we don't want Him to touch, those are my toys. Those are my areas of comfort. Those are the things that I've secured for myself. You can't have that. 
when we throw a little internal tantrum to God and we say, my will is my own, I will not surrender. God says, I'm going to allow some pain. I'm going to give some place for pain in your life because that's not okay. God disciplines those he loves. And discipline is not fun. Otherwise, it would not be discipline. Hello? Oh, it's really quiet in here today. You're like, Merry Christmas. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in agony, in pain, in anguish, sweating drops of blood, so much stress going on in his body that his blood vessels were bursting and coming through his skin. And in this moment says, not my will, but your will be done. Why? Because we need to know that Jesus was surrendered to the will of the Father. How much more for us to be surrendered to his will. See, pain allows us to be transformed by God into the image of Jesus. And the very first step is for me to say, it's not my will, it's your will. And you can't just say that once. You probably have to say it every hour on the hour, if not more. In that lane with that guy cutting in front of me, not my will, because <laughs> I know what I want to do. All right now, I'm a pastor, so there's certain things I can't do. But I'll pull up next to you, and then I'll do the look. You know the look, right? I'm going to just let everything on my face let you know what you did wasn't okay. Why? Why? Because my will is upset, and I'm throwing a little tantrum, and I need you to know. God says, well, my will would be... Just let it go. Pray for him. Be a blessing to him. Maybe he's having a hard day. Who knows? Not my will, but your will be done. See, pain and persecution are the crucible in which our trust and submission to the will of God are tested and purified. Pain and persecution are the crucible in which our trust and submission to the will of God are tested and purified. I love that there's no rousing amen with that. We don't want the pain, but God is saying, you know what, there's place for pain in your life because it accomplishes something that I need to accomplish. See, when I'm in the crucible, when I'm in the furnace, when I'm in the place of pressure, my trust and the the object of my trust becomes very, very evident very quickly. See, happy and fortunate are those who are persecuted and experience pain. Now, let me say this. We don't seek it out, right? We don't, it's not like we're going out, out of here today. The point of today's message is, hey, go find pain, all right? It'll find you. <laughs> yeah, that's getting an Amen. It will find you. The enemy is waiting. He's crouching. He's ready to pounce. See, we don't seek it out. It's not sadism or masochism. Sadism is this. The sadist inflicts pain on others. And the masochist inflicts pain on self. And, and both of these are perversions. Both of these do not line up with the kingdom of God. See, there were monks who used to beat themselves in an effort to be closer to God. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. 
Pain doesn't just draw you closer to God for pain's sake. There's something deeper going on. C.S. Lewis writes in The Problem of Pain, and the words will be up on the screen to follow. He says this, If suffering is good, ought it not to be pursued rather than avoided? I answer that suffering is not good in itself. What is good in any painful experience is, for the sufferer, his submission to the will of God. And for the spectators, the compassion aroused and the acts of mercy to which it leads. What is good in any painful, any painful experience is for the sufferer his submission to the will of God. In the midst of my pain, whatever form it takes, That I would be able to say, God, I am submitting to your will. I don't get it. I don't like it. But I am submitting and surrendering myself to your will. I am trusting you. I'm believing in you. See, we have an emphasis in the modern church. That God is in place to make our lives comfortable, easy, blessed, without any opposition. That if you go to church and you give and you just do all of, go through all of the, motion, the motions, that somehow your life should just be smooth sailing. But that ha- holds no water biblically. See, we're drawn to the warm, fuzzy aspects of our Christian faith. We love the things that make us feel good. We love talking about comfort and joy and peace and abounding and being blessed. And for good reason. It's good when those things happen. And it's not that we shouldn't even desire those things. Here's where the problem comes in when we have such an overemphasis on those areas. Then we begin to see anything that robs us of these things as evidence that God does not love us, that we are being punished, that we have to do every, anything and everything that we can, can to regain that stasis. That stasis being a point of equilibrium. Not too much bad, not too much good. If I'm leaning anyway, it's towards the good. But I just don't want the bad. I don't want the uncomfortable. I don't want the difficult. No pain, please. If I buy into the idea that God is only about making me feel good, then anything that doesn't feel good is not in line with God. And I cannot see the value. And here's the problem with that. If, If pain is the place where God transforms us and we avoid pain at all costs, what's going to happen? I'm not going to be transformed. I'm going to stay the way I am and I'm going to think it's okay and be quite happy with it. goes a step further. We even go so far as to presume to be mad at God or angry with Him when we find ourselves in pain, persecution, or even mild discomfort. I can't tell you how many people I talk to as a pastor who go, well, I'm just mad at God because you know what? And I'm like, whoa. What I'm not saying is don't have the emotion. But we have no footing, we have no ground to be angry at God ever. And the kind of doctrine and teaching that's making its way into the church that says, it's okay, you can be angry at God. Oh my gosh, he's God. 
Jesus did not get angry at God. The disciples did not get angry at God. No one in all of Scripture, at least in the New Testament, got angry at God. Why? Because they understood that He is the Almighty and we're not. But when we buy into a comfort theology, I give myself permission to be mad at God. And when I'm mad at God, I'm not trusting Him. And it's a dangerous place to be. See, my anger exposes my lack of surrender. Whew, I'm sorry, this is heavy. <laughs> my anger exposes my lack of surrender. Pete Scazzaro in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, more specifically, he has a chapter entitled Enlarging Your Soul Through Grief and Loss writes these words, our culture routinely interprets losses as alien invasions that interrupt our normal lives. We numb our pain through denial, blaming, rationalizations, addictions, and avoidance. We search for spiritual shortcuts around our wounds. We demand others take away our pain. Yet we all face many deaths within our lives. The choice is whether these deaths will be terminal, crushing our spirit and life, or open us up to the new possibilities and depths of transformation in Christ. It's not a question of whether or not you will have pain. It's what you're going to do when the pain comes. And if we will learn in the midst of the pain to come to the cross, to come to the, to the feet of Jesus, to cry out on him and say, God, I don't understand this. I don't like it, but I trust that you're moving in the midst of this. And the, and, and, and the crazy thing about this is, is that we want, there's times where we feel like, well, I want to be further along than I am. And that God says, I can't allow you to move beyond this point. Because you can't live in that place until you've conquered and surrendered in this place. Consider the children of Israel wandering around a desert for 40 years. There's some things that you need to learn. You're not willing to surrender and trust me even though I just moved in mighty ways. You made a golden calf. How quickly we forget and his solution for them is you will walk around the desert until the generation that made the decision to do that dies. Because you cannot occupy the promised land with that kind of thinking. Whew. Jesus comes as a baby and he says, pain's going to be a part of your life because pain was a part of my life. But he trusted God. Mary and Joseph trusted God. And we see God meet them every step of the way. Very quickly, the last two. Third thing is this. Pain gives opportunity to extend the mercy of God. See, because I experience pain, I can also observe it. Because I've experienced pain, I can also observe it in the lives of other people. If my life was pain-free... If I'd never experienced pain in any way or shape or form in my life, I would have no context for compassion or empathy in your life. Jesus can relate to us. He was a suffering servant. 
Matthew 9.36 says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, because I experienced pain and because I've received mercy, I can now in turn turn around and extend mercy. I can become the mechanism and the agent by which people are loved with the love of God. Comforted, as Paul says, the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort not only wants to comfort you, but he wants to comfort others through you. And here's the thing, if I'm so concerned and wrapped up in my own pain, I will never see the pain of others. There's a gift in pain that in the midst of pain, I learn to have compassion for others who are walking through the same thing. Now that doesn't mean you have to have done the same thing to extend the compassion. You don't have to have the experience because Jesus is bigger than the experience. Compassion is compassion. Mercy is mercy and we get to extend that to people. And so there's a gift in that for us. It gives us the opportunity to extend mercy. And then finally is this. Pain serves as a catalyst for the mission of God. Pain is a catalyst for the mission of God. Let me explain. The early church grew at a mind-boggling pace. In AD 100, it's estimated that there were 25,000 Christians in the world. In the world. I think Life Church in Oklahoma has more Christians in one church. By AD 310, 210 years later, it said that there were 20 million Christians in the world. All during a time where Christianity was for the most part illegal, and at the very least, or at the very most, tolerated, the believers were heavily, heavily persecuted in those first 200 years. Beyond what we can comprehend in regards to persecution. Not only that, they didn't have a building. Can I get an amen? They didn't have a building. They didn't need a building. I get asked all the time, Pastor, when do you think we're going to get a building? Here, here's my take, and until God changes it, because I believe I've heard from him, and our leadership is in alignment with this, I would rather free up funds for the mission of God than get wrapped up in paying for a building, because buildings leak, and plumbing breaks, stuff happens. The early church didn't need a building, and the word that I heard from the Lord when I was praying about a building was, oh God, we need a building. And he says, stop asking for a building, stop thinking about a building, stop spending time looking at buildings, and stop comparing yourself to other people who have buildings. <laughs> and the word of the Lord to me was this, whatever you think you need will not contain the work that I want to do. Yeah. All right, Lord, we're happy where we are. It was good enough for the early church. It's good enough for us. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have structure the way we had it. They didn't even have the Bible. Think about this. There was no Bible. They didn't get up in the first 200 years of the church and say, turn to Acts, because they were living it. Turn, turn to your neighbor, <laughs> right? 
The Corinthian, turn to your neighbor. We're in, we're in Corinth. Hey, let's read Paul's letter. And they didn't have an institution or professional leadership or denominations like we have now. And they grew at a rate that, that really hasn't been replicated, save in one instance that we can see in history. John 15, 20, Jesus says this, Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus is simply saying this, when you go out and you preach me, either people will hear it and receive it, or they won't. And those that receive it will receive it wholeheartedly, and those who won't will probably persecute you. And why should you be any different to me? Because that's what they did to me. And I'm the son of God. And so pain becomes this catalyst. In the 1930s and 40s, Chairman Mao came into power in China. He expelled all of the missionaries, closed all of the churches, killed all of the pastors. At that time in China, it's estimated that around 2 million believers were present in mainland China. And then what they call was the uh, bamboo curtain fell. In the 1970s, after the death of Chairman Mao, as the curtain started lifting and as missionaries and, and Westerners were finding their way back into China, Christian scholars were trying to figure out, well, what's the condition of the church? We estimate about 2 million believers 40, 40 or so years ago. I wonder where we're at now. The best estimate, because the church is underground, the best estimate that after having no structure, no formal leadership, no Bibles, and meeting at fear of your life was that the church had grown to over 80 million. 80 million. I wonder sometimes, when we think about why the church is not growing, could it be that we've become so comfortable and ignored pain? We've become so pain-free that there is no catalytic movement inside of our own souls to preach the gospel. See, pain becomes a catalyst for the expansion of the kingdom of God. Let me go all the way back to Bethlehem. And an angel showing up in a dream to Joseph saying, it's going to get ugly. There's going to be persecution. I'm going to give you instructions about what to do. There's going to be a lot of tears. There's going to be a lot of discomfort. But what is going to come is going to change the world forever. And we're invited at Christmas into that same narrative. Your pain matters to God. It does. He sees your pain. He knows what you're walking through. My challenge to us this morning would be this. Can we surrender our will and learn to trust him in the midst of the pain, not in spite of it? Say, God, thank you that you meet me. And then allow him to do a work in us that will change the world. Amen? Let's stand together. We bow our heads. I want to ask this question this morning. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with this Jesus that we've been talking about, you've never said yes to him, you've never asked him to be your Lord and Savior, I don't want to move past this moment without giving you an opportunity to say yes to him. It's the greatest decision you can make 
in this life. If that's you, you want to say yes to him, you want a personal relationship with him, no one's looking around, this is between you and the Lord in this moment. Would you simply raise your hand so I can agree with you? Raise it nice and high so I can see. Anyone this morning would say, yes, I I need to know Jesus. All right. Lord, this morning, we've been confronted with the problem of pain. At least it would appear as a problem, but God, nothing is lost in your kingdom. Your kingdom is an upside down kingdom. And so, Lord, I thank you that you meet us in the pain, that you transform our lives in the midst of the pain, that you purify us in the midst of the pain. God, that your grace and your mercy are evident in the midst of the pain. And Lord, I pray over this congregation this morning, Lord, for anyone who are walking through the valley, who are in the midst of unspeakable pain, God, that you would meet them in that place. That the God of all comfort would bring the comfort needed in that moment. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to walk with you. That we would not despise pain. But in the midst of the pain that we would seek you and embrace you. God, as we move towards a new year. God, I pray that what you're doing in each of us and what you're doing in this church would lead to transformation of lives, of marriages, of homes, of ministries. God, that you would bring about reconciliation and healing as we submit ourselves to you and to your will. We give you praise in the name of Jesus.